We have a huge challenge this morning. We're in our series on the seven churches. Of, um, we're going to look at the church of Thyatira, but we're looking at the seven churches of Revelation. Of course, our series title is this, Listen Up, Listen Up. Each, to each church, he says, hear what the Spirit says. Jesus says, listen up to what I have to say to each of these churches. And the reason why I have a challenge this morning is because this is interesting, because the letter to Thyatira, not only to the church, but to that city, Thyatira was the smallest of all cities, but interesting, it's the longest of all letters. This letter that he wrote is much longer than the others, and so there's a lot more content here. Um, this past week, uh, so as I'm driving or I'm, you know, running errands, I went down and helped one of our members move on Monday, uh, moved to St. George. They moved down there. So I was helping them uh, move. So I used my time wisely. So I listened to sermons. I'll listen to scripture, listen to worship music. And so I was listening to some sermons. There was two of the top sermons that popped up on, the, on this church, the church of Thyatira. And the first one was 55 minutes long. I think that was MacArthur or something like that, and it was 55 minutes long. And uh, I listened to that one, and I had some other time as I was running errands throughout the week, and I said, well, I'll listen to another one. The other one was like an hour and 15 minutes long. And I thought, well, I, you know what I should do? I should split the difference. And all God's people said? Amen. So, no, I'm not going to split the difference. <laughs> I'll try to keep us on point and on time. But he says, hear what the Spirit says to these churches. We're going to look at the church of Thyatira, but we're reminded that the Apostle John was exiled on Patmos, and if you don't mind, we'll just send the, have a picture of the seven churches before we read. But he sends out a letter uh, to Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. We started in Ephesus, and then we went to Smyrna, which was the persecuted church. Then we worked our way up uh, to uh, Pergamum, and now we're in Thyatira. As I mentioned, Thyatira, it was the smallest of all the cities, but yet we have the longest letter. And so why don't we go ahead and read here in Revelation chapter 2, this last part of this chapter, this letter to Thyatira. We'll try to stay on point as best we can. There's a picture there on the background. That's uh, Thyatira, some of the remains of the city of Thyatira. It says, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words, notice this carefully, the words of the Son of God, we'll mention that in a moment, very important, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works and your love and faith and service and your patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching, and notice this, and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but notice these words, interesting. She refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw her into great or throw them into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. These are strong words, strongest of all letters. 
from the Lord Jesus Christ through John to this church. She says, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches, he's saying the idea is this, all the churches will know. I will make an example. All the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart can hide nothing from God. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I don't lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and the one who keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, I pray you'd bless your word this morning in the very brief time that we have to cover such a tremendous amount of information in this amazing letter, this strong letter, this very powerful letter with great warning. Lord, I pray that you would please, Holy Spirit, help me to be very concise, to be on point. Lord, to use the time that we have wisely. Holy Spirit, may we hear what you have to say to this church of Thyatira, how important this message is for our generation and for us as the church today, that this message is for us today as well. May we listen, may we hear what you have to say today, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let me just break it down quickly. Each week we, in the introduction, we talk about the city, we talk about Christ who's mentioned, we talk about the church. I'll just briefly mention this city of Thyatira. That's kind of some of the ruins uh, in Thyatira. Thyatira, uh, some believe it meant the, the name daughter, um, many others believe that the name Thyatira meant odor of affliction. And I'll mention that in a moment. But it was a city that was um, the smallest of all the cities. It was mostly a military garrison type city where the military was there because it protected the other cities. Especially the, the large city like per Pergamum and then the city of Sardis. It became more and more of like a, a military a military site. But also there what happened was it became kind of an industrial city. It became a city where uh, they were known for their dyeing of, of clothes and dyeing of purple linens. If you remember the story where Paul takes the gospel to Philippi, he meets a very wealthy woman named Lydia who was a seller of purple garments. And the Bible says she was from Thyatira. So Thyatira was a place where it was kind of the industrial city. It was a trade city. And they, they were used to, to send goods throughout uh, what we would know as today modern-day Turkey. It's interesting because the city there today is called Akshar, or however you pronounce it. It means White Castle because there's still a remnant uh, from the days of Rome when it was a military city. And they did have some type of what we would consider like castle there. Today they sell tobacco, uh, olives, olive oil, uh, and one of their biggest items, and one, they go worldwide, is they sell Turkish rugs uh, because of, obviously, handmade uh, Turkish rugs. So it's still an industrial city even to this day. 
It was made up of a colony, don't, don't forget this, of Macedonian Greeks. They were Greeks, and this will tie in to what we're going to see as far as the sexual immorality and the sin of this city, but not only the sin of the city, but the sin that crept into the church. And so I don't want to spend a lot of time about this city, but as we did mention, it's one of the smallest cities. Yet it received one of the strongest letters and the largest letter from the Lord. What we see here is interesting as well, is we see Christ. In each of the seven churches, we see a depiction or a representation of who Christ is. And this one is very interesting because nowhere else, even that I know of in the book of Revelation, do we see Christ referenced as the Son of God. Even earlier in Revelation 1, he's kind of more of referred to as the Son of Man, and we see more of his humanity. We see him uh, mentioned as the one who, who's there in the midst of the churches. But here we're going to see that this letter is a very strong letter, and when Christ depicts himself of who he is, he says, this letter is coming from the Son of God. The idea is this, is that he is saying that, that I, am, I am God, I am deity, that I am, whether we want to hear this word or not, but God is a holy God. And the church ought to say amen, amen right there. He is a holy God. And so when he, he speaks here to this church, he says, these are the words, notice, of, of the Son of God. He is saying that I am God and that that I have this place of authority over this church. And he also is, is, is emphasizing that as, as Peter said, God said this throughout Scripture, I am the Lord thy God and I am holy. Peter said it like this, be holy for he is holy. So what you have to understand is that even at the very beginning of this letter, as we read here, it's very strong. It's a very powerful letter. It comes with great warning to this church. And he is reminding them of his position and of who he is. He says his eyes are as a flame of fire. This is a very serious thing. The idea is that it's the all-seeing eye of God. His eyes are as a flame of fire. He mentions here that his feet are like burnished brass. It's the idea of that of judgment, that he's coming in judgment to, to judge this church. And by the way, he is God. He has every right to judge. Amen? And so we see the church, the church of Thyatira, small city. Many refer to it as the odor of affliction. Some think that it means odor of affliction or the odors because of the dyes and the industrial aspect of the city. I grew up in Pennsylvania, and there were certain cities that you would drive through. I remember there was one city, uh, Sunbury, near Sunbury, Pennsylvania, they had a huge paper mill. There was another one I remember outside of uh, heading through uh, Kansas City area. If you've ever been through the Kansas City area, there's these big mills, these big plants, and you'll see these big stacks, and you'll see this you'll see the smoke pouring out of these stacks and these paper mill, and for some reason, they leave an awful stench. You can just smell it. How many of you have ever smelled something like that? You know what I mean? When I was in the Midwest, they had pig farms. <laughs> Odor of affliction, are you with me? I grew up in Pennsylvania. 
One of my best friends, I'll never forget it, best friends growing up, he had, they had a pig farm and they had a chicken farm. And you would, when they would, I knew when they were at school and when they weren't at school. You could smell the pig odor, and you can't get that odor out. It's disgusting. It's awful. And I mean, you would, when you drive by a pig farm, you know it, okay? How many of you have been on the highway, and one of those trucks pulls out, and there's a bunch of pigs in there, you know? And you're driving behind it, and you're like, oh, you know, you have to go around it, you know? That odor of affliction. But may I say to you, I think it's interesting because it was also symbolic of the fact that, if you will, the sin of this church, it was an odor of affliction to God Almighty. It, didn't, it wasn't that of a sweet-smelling savor, but it was something that was, oh. I want to very quickly, there's three quick points and three quick thoughts each week that we're looking at. We see Christ complimenting them. There was some wonderful things about this church, and we'll just very briefly look into this. But he, he mentions a number of statements about this church. In fact, he actually gives this church really probably more compliments than any of the other churches. He commends them. He compliments them. He says, I know your works. Remember the all-seeing eyes of God. The idea is this, the Bible says that God sees everything. And he says, my eyes are as a flame of fire. Uh, the Bible says, Solomon says in Proverbs, he says that the eyes of the Lord are in every place. He beholds, he sees the good and he sees the evil. He sees, yes, the evil that we do. But may we be reminded, God also sees the good things that we do. Amen. And God sees it all, and he takes record, and he takes note. He reminds this church, he says, hey, Thyatira, I know your works, and I know your labor, and I see it all. He says, I know your charity or your love. He says, I know that, that there's been times you've demonstrated great love. I see it. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus where he said, if you even give just a cup of cold water to one of the least of these in his name that he sees it, Amen. God sees the, the, the acts of kindness and the acts of service. He sees the, the, the things that people donate and the things that people do and the sacrifices that they make. He sees it. And he says, I see your service. And it was a serving church. It was a loving church. And may I say this, this might sound wrong, but maybe in some ways they were out of balance, and we'll see this in a moment, but they're almost trying to be too loving. And you say, well, you can never be too loving. But sometimes what we will do is we will not speak truth because we say, well, we want to love people. But can I tell you this? True love will speak the truth even if it hurts. And the church was a serving church. He says, I see your faith. There was definitely a remnant, we'll see in a moment, a remnant of people who still truly had a heart for God and that they did not compromise. He said, I see your faith. They, had their, they, they trusted in God and believed in God. He says, I see your patience and your enduring. Uh, they, too, probably not as much as the others, but also had to endure some type of persecution. He says, I see your patience and your persistence. And he makes an interesting statement. And it says a lot about this church, but I think it's a warning as well. Because he says, again, and I see your works, that your later works are greater than your first works. The idea is this. He's saying this church, that you are a growing church. 
You're growing in number and you're growing in your service and you're growing in your acts of kindness and your deeds and you're growing in, in what you're doing. But can I just, we're getting ready to transition here to where the Lord confronts him. But can I say this? Just because a church is a growing church does not mean that it's a godly church. Let that sink in, all right? Just because it's a growing church does not mean that it was a godly church. And I believe that this church, as we're going to see, was compromising. And we're going to see that this church is, is a, a, a word that would best describe this church was they were a tolerant church. But he does say to this church, I commend you and I compliment you on your works and your charity, your service, your faith, your patience and endurance. And, and he says in that, that you are growing and that, that you're performing other works and greater works, even more than when you first begun. But at the same time, this church not only compromised like the other churches, but it became what we know as the tolerant church. If you were to give a title for the name of the church of Thyatira, Thyatira was the tolerant church. And we're going to see that the Lord is going to confront them the second thing he does is he, he confronts this church. And he says, there's a lot of things about you that are not right, and you need to get right with God. And what he says is this, is that, that they tolerate it, that prophetess or that woman, Jezebel, and gave her a place of leadership within the church. Now, let me just pause for a moment and just remind you that I think that even as we, we say, we study each of the churches, and he says, listen to what the Spirit says to each of the churches. I think there's a sequential order here of when we look at each church. The church of Ephesus, remember what happened to them? They were, they were a good church. They were things that they were doing right. But what did God say? God said, Jesus said, but I have this against you. You've left your first love, Right? We talked about the church of Smyrna. There was, no, there was no confrontation there. The Lord did not confront them about anything, uh, and they were persecuted. And what we said is this, is that because they were under such great persecution, they needed Christ, and they were so close to Christ, and they had a love for Christ that there was no need to confront them with anything. But what's interesting is this, is we have this sequence here. If you look at the church of Ephesus, they lost their love for the Lord. And may I say this, when you lose your love for the Lord, the next thing that happens is this, is you begin to fall in love with the world. In the church of Ephesus, we called it the compromising church. And what were they? They were married to the world. They were compromising and they were married to the world. And so look at the church of Ephesus. It's, I believe there, there's a picture here, a sequential order, is that when you are not in love with Christ, you're going to be in love with something and you're going to fall in love with this world. Are you with me? And the things of this world. And so we see that the church of Pergamum was the compromising church and fell in love with the world. And then we see the church of Thyatira. Once you begin to compromise, before long, you begin to tolerate, become tolerant. Isn't that something that we hear a lot of now, tolerance? You know what I found amazing, though, is everyone wants us to be tolerant of their lifestyles and their behavior, but they will not tolerate us even saying one word about what the Bible says. 
It's all tolerance. It's always on one side. Are you with me, church? All right. And so Christ confronts this church. He said, you have allowed this this woman, Jezebel, this one who claims to be a prophet of God, a prophetess, you've allowed her to come in. And the church has not only compromised and allowed her to come in, but they tolerated. They've allowed this woman to take a leadership role within the church. And the Bible says that this prophetess, this woman that came into the church of Thyatira, she had tremendous influence and tremendous impact. And may I just give us a warning, and that is this, is do not, do not, do not in the slightest think, do not in the slightest think that somehow, well, what, what can one person do? Or what can one event do? Or what can one fill in the blank do? Can I tell you something? One person can have tremendous influence and impact. See, we have this idea, oh, well, it's just one person. You know, maybe the church of Thyatira, out of a loving heart, out of love, said, well, we need to accept this woman, this prophet. We need to accept her. We need to tolerate her and bring her in. And before long, the Bible says she seduced the church. She led the church astray. You know, Again, we live in a culture, the world is telling us, our culture is telling us to be tolerant, to be tolerant, to accept it, and to, to just, you know, turn the blind eye. Well, that's what the church of Thyatira did, and let me tell you, it didn't turn out well, did it? We have this idea, we think, well, it's just, it's just one, or it's just two, or it's just a couple. No, we must be on guard. Amen, church? As a community, we must be involved Red Hills Church, be involved in this community. There are, you know, people who are involved in trying to keep this community the way that God would want it. Amen? But can I tell you, Seth, there's the evils of this world. It's coming. It's here. It's all around us. Are you, is this bearing witness? It's all around us. It's happening. It's happening. Everyone thinks, oh, it's California or other places. No, it's right here. Cedar City, right here, Iron County. It's coming in. And the world tells us, be tolerant. Be tolerant. And so they tolerated a woman. And it's not that she was a woman, it was her message. And the Bible says that this woman, who it says here, calls her Jezebel, most scholars, most people, I agree that her, probably, her name probably wasn't Jezebel. We don't know the name of this prophetess or this claim to be prophet who came into the church of Thyatira. The idea is this, that she had the spirit of Jezebel. Does that make sense? And so the idea is that this prophetess had the spirit and was an influential and very powerful woman and, and I'm sure uh, able to, to sway people. And, it, and he uses the word seduce. And she seduced the church into idolatry and seduced the church into worshiping idols and seduced the church, a church that was once a godly church, a church 
that possibly people like Lydia were members of this church, converts to the Apostle Paul. But somewhere along the line, they were tolerant and they allowed this false teaching and they allowed this, this woman in, maybe in a spirit of, if you will, tolerance, maybe in a spirit of so-called love, will allow this woman to come in because we don't want to offend, we don't want to hurt, we don't want to you know, upset the apple cart, so to speak. So we'll tolerate her, we'll allow her in. Well, lo and behold... She had the spirit of Jezebel. What does the Bible mean by this? What do we mean? Why does John, and through Christ, mention Jezebel? Because there was a woman by the name of Jezebel in the Old Testament who did the same thing to God's people. Let me just give you a couple passages. In 1 Kings chapter 16, this is where we see Jezebel mentioned. By the way, there's a picture of, of, of Baal. And Jezebel got people to worship Baal. What a great-looking God. Amen? <laughs> kind of creepy, huh? Invokes fear. Now you know why they would offer up their babies, their children, as human sacrifice to the, to the altars of Baal. You see, there was a king in Israel who took over. His name was King Ahab. And King Ahab became the king of Israel, and he made Samaria, when the kingdom was divided, he made Samaria the capital city of Israel. And one thing that he did was basically try to create a truce with another country, another region close by. And so he marries their daughter, and the daughter's name was Jezebel. We don't have time to go into the whole story, but I want you to see what, what God thought of this. And it says, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as it had been a, a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam and the sons of Nebat, he took for his wife, can you say the next name? Jezebel. There she is. By the way, I don't believe that the woman in the book of Revelation, her name was Jezebel. It's possible, but I don't believe it. Most likely because who would ever name their child Jezebel after knowing the story of Jezebel? I have not met one yet. I mean, I've met a couple who have the spirit of Jezebel, amen? <laughs> have you I've even met the one? <laughs> Some of you are like, I dated that one. I dated that one. I was, I was like in a relationship with that one. Ooh, watch out. Like, that was that, oh man, that was, she was a Jezzy, you know? <laughs> and so, Jezzy, the daughter of, listen to this, Ethbaal, even named after the god Baal, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. This was a political move. This was a move to be politically correct. This was a political, strategic move to try to bring, if you will, peace to the region. And so what does Ahab do? He, he marries, it's a political, strategic move. He marries Jezebel, the daughter of the Sidonian king. And, it's, and it says this, and he went and he served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal. So he, he builds an altar and they would offer up babies. They would offer up human sacrifice to this altar of Baal. But not only that, he, he builds a temple in the city of Samaria. In the capital city, he builds a temple to Baal. And then it says this, and, and Ahab made an Asherah or an Asherah pole. 
which was also a place of worship where they would bow down and worship. And it says, And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O enemy? Here, Elijah's coming to confront him. You've heard the series on Elijah, and that's a whole other series. But isn't it interesting? He claims that Elijah is the problem. Elijah is the enemy. He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Listen to these words. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up, will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me. This is God speaking through Elijah. And because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, uh, the, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab, who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone uh, who dies in the open countries, the birds of the heaven shall, shall eat. Therefore was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. Notice these words, whom Jezebel, his wife, what? Incited. She incited him. She seduced him. She tricked him. Not even necessarily tricked him, but deceived him and led him down this path. By the way, relationships are important. Amen. Who you marry is important. Who you date is important. What they believe is important. Very important. And notice here, Jezebel, the Bible says, incited Ahab. She, she seduced him to lead the people astray. And this is why the Lord uses this example of Jezebel, that prophetess. Look with me in 1 Kings 21. 1 Kings 21, 20 through 25. It says, and Ahab said to Elijah, oh, did I already read it all? Yeah, we already covered it all. Never mind. We covered two, two passages, two chapters in, in one. So he, she incited him. I don't know if you know this story, but it's interesting how God worked because Elijah prophesied that the dogs would eat the flesh of Jezebel. And there was a, there was a, a um, soldier who becomes a king. His name is Jehu. He was the captain of the army. And Jehu finally was so tired of the, the wickedness and the sinfulness. And God used Jehu to cleanse the nation of Israel. And Jehu goes to battle and goes to war. And, and even prior to this, leading up to that, we see that Ahab dies. And it's a cool story. Ahab dies. He, even, he's, he, he has a, an alliance with another country, and he tricks the other king to dress up like Elijah. I mean, like, I'm sorry, like Ahab. He says, you're going to wear my garments and my stuff. Because it was a prophecy. Ahab got the prophecy that he would die in battle. And Ahab's like, well, I'm going to out-trick God. I'm going to out-trick everyone. I'm going to get the other king to wear all of my garments and ride in my chariot. And so the other king, like an idiot, is like, sure, okay, I'll do it. And he puts on his helmet and his gear. It's, it's in the book of Kings. Go back and read it. And so Ahab's like, I got this. I'm going to disguise the other king like me, and he'll get killed in battle, and I won't. And so they went out to battle. 
Ahab defies God. The prophets tell him what's going to happen, and he didn't like the prophecy, so he's going to fix it. And so he changes his garments, and he's in a different chariot. And the Bible tells us that, that just by chance, that there was a soldier who was not even in the battle. He was not even engaged in the battle. He was off by himself, was bored. And he literally just takes an arrow, and he just pulls back and lets it fly, just for fun. And the Bible says it hits King Ahab right in the joints, right in the middle of where his armor is. And, it, and it, it hits him right in the joints and hits him. And he begins to bleed out in his chariot. And he says, says to the, his, you know, his, his little sidekick, he's like, get me out of here. I've been hit. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have loved to watch that arrow fly as this soldier just goes, Hoor! and all of a sudden it goes, and you can see, I can see this cartoon. The chariot goes this way. The arrow goes this way. He goes this way. The arrow goes this way. He goes this way. The arrow goes. God made sure that arrow caught Ahab, right? I mean, wow. He just randomly shoots this arrow, not even aiming at anyone, and bam, Ahab gets it. And then Jezebel's now in leadership. But then Jehu says, that's it. It's done. And it's interesting. Jehu comes to Jezebel, she's so defiant and so evil and so wicked. And by the way, she seduced the nation of Israel into all types of sexual immorality, sacrifice, sac sacrificing babies on the altar of Baal. And God was angry and God was upset. And Jehu, the Bible says he, I love what it says about Jehu. He drives like some of you. It says he drove furiously in his chariot. Here he came, and a cloud of dust came, and Jezebel had her, her, her um, male eunuchs up there. And, and the Bible says she puts on her makeup, and she paints her face, and she's up in the, the kind of the castle, picture the castle looking out the window, and Jehu shows up, and she begins to, in essence, almost curse him, like, who do you think you are, and what are you doing? And Jehu says this, Jehu says, hey, anyone who is with the Lord, throw her out the window, and the eunuchs grab her and toss her out the window. And the Bible says she hits the ground. Can you guys handle this, by the way? It's all in the Bible. She hits the ground, and the blood splatters on the, on the walls. And the blood splatters on the horses. And then Jehu's horses begin to stomp her. And the blood begins to gush. And then you got, I mean, this is like Bible stuff. All the children are now leaving, okay? <laughs> That's what children's church is for. Stomps him, stomps her. Jehu goes in and has a meal. He goes in to start to eat. And while he's sitting there eating, he has a teeny bit of a conscience. He's like, well, she is the daughter of a king. You guys should go bury her. And when they go out to go bury her, they said there's nothing left. There's a little bit of the skull in her hands and her palms. And then Jehu says, ah, oh, the prophecy of the Lord. You say, why was there nothing left of her? The Bible says that the dogs came and ate her. The Bible says about Ahab, the dogs came and licked the blood and, and ate Ahab, but licked the blood from the chariot. The prophecy of Elijah is true. By the way, God's word is true. The Bible says, Jehu says, well, it's fulfilled what the Elijah prophet had said, that her, she will literally be, she will be dung. She will be, she will be dog poop on the hills of Jezreel. I cleaned it up for church, amen. 
You're like, that's the cleaned up version? Oh, yeah, trust me. <laughs> He's like, that's, that's what the Lord said. Christ gave this woman an opportunity. If you notice carefully, he says, I gave her the opportunity to repent. The Bible says here in Revelation, as he speaks to this church, he speaks of the prophetess Jezebel. He said, I gave her the opportunity to repent, but she refused. I don't know if you guys caught that. We read earlier, she refused. That is an act of God's grace. But God is also a holy God. I'm so much, almost out of time, so i got to move very quickly here. She was given the opportunity to repent, this prophetess. God probably sent someone, a messenger, a disciple, a follower of Christ, someone to warn her, to tell her, please repent of what you're doing. The Bible says she refused to repent of her immorality. Can I say this? Holiness matters to God. Holiness matters. And God will judge I have to say this as well, because God is, listen to me, God is not tolerant. God is a patient God. God is long-suffering, but God does not tolerate sin. Amen? Does this make sense? We often think that because God is long-suffering or because God is merciful, because God is gracious, or because God is patient, that God is, we somehow assume that God's just tolerant then, that God's allowing it. No, God is not allowing it. He's, he, he, he's patient. He's long-suffering. Think about this, this world that was once much beautiful, much more beautiful than what it is now. It was flooded by a great flood. God was patient. God was long-suffering. But God did not tolerate the wickedness and sin in the days of Noah. Amen, church? And there was a time where he judged them. He had Noah, the preacher of righteousness, preach for 120 years to warn the people, but they refused to repent. And he says to this woman, and of this woman, this prophetess here in the church of Thyatira, he says, I've challenged her and I told her to repent, but she refuses. He gave her an opportunity. And so Christ says, I will have to judge her and judge her followers. Peter says it like this, that judgment must begin in the house in the family of God. You see, he says to this church, you will be a warning to all the other churches. May this be a warning to all the other churches that if I have to step in and judge this church, this will be a warning. I'm reminded in the book of Acts of Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit. And remember within the church, they were, they, the Lord killed them. And it said this great fear came upon all of the church. Does that make sense? The Lord is saying here that to the church of Thyatira, if you're not careful, I may have to come and make an example of you. That holiness matters. And that the grace of God is not a license to sin because God is merciful and God is gracious. Yet we have this idea that somehow because God is merciful, God is gracious, that it's a license to sin. And that's a whole bunch of other scripture. But Paul clearly says this. He says that because the, the grace of God abounds, it does not mean that it is a license for us to sin. Does this make sense? To just live our lives the way that we choose and the way that we feel that holiness does matter. I have to finish with the comfort to the church. In verses 24 through 29, very quickly, he comforts this church. He says to those within the church, he says to those of you who, who have not given in to the teaching 
of this prophetess, he says this, I like this. He says, there will be no more burden placed upon you. He says, I'm not going to give you more than you can handle. There was a remnant within the church of Thyatira that stood firm, that stood strong, that did not compromise and that did not, uh, were not tolerant of her ways. And so the Bible says that the Lord Jesus saw this and the Lord saw it and he says to them, I will not give you a greater burden. He says to this church, he says to the remnant that's holding on in this difficult time, he says, hold fast till I come. May I remind you something? The Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. Amen. And he says to his church, I'm coming. Hold fast. Hold on. I know it's not easy. I know it's, it's difficult. But in the midst of it, hold fast. Hold on. And I'm not going to place on you a greater burden. I promise not to give you more than you can handle. And he says, just hold on a little longer. I'm coming. I'm coming again. He gives them a promise of authority. He says that you will have the authority to rule over the nations. You see, I want you to understand what we do here as followers of Christ. What we do here and now matters later in eternity. A couple quick scriptures. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. What was Jesus speaking of? What was he telling this church? He says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, Holding, his, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit, and he shut it, and he sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones. And seated on them were those to whom the authority, this is the authority that is given to you and I. He says, I, they have authority to judge what is committed. And also I saw the souls of those who had been, been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life. Notice this. And what did they do? They reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. He promises this church, he says, what you do, do here on earth matters because what you do here on earth will determine how you will serve in the kingdom. Amen? And he says, you will rule and reign with Christ. And so I encourage you, church, the same way that Jesus encouraged the church of Thyatira, he says, hold fast, stand firm, stand strong, don't compromise, don't, don't do it. Be faithful and be true to the word of God, and I will bless you. And he says, Holiness matters, and how you live matters, because how you live here on earth will determine the positions that I will grant you with authority in the place of the kingdom. And all God's people said, amen. amen. We will rule and reign with Jesus Christ for a thousand years here on earth. Some of you might get to boss your boss around. I don't know, you know. But then he promises him this because we're out of time. He says, I promise you the morning star. Revelation 22, 16, who is this morning star? I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. 
I am the root and the descendant of David. I am what? The bright and morning star. He promises them himself. Amen. You know, when we think about eternity and we think about after this life, what's important, I'm going to tell you something. The greatest thing, the most important thing, the most beautiful thing is to have Christ. I close with this. There was a man by the name of Stephen. Godly man. Church. The Bible says he was a godly man and he was preaching the truth and standing for the truth. And you know, many of you know the story. But the scribes and the Pharisees and religious leaders and the Jewish people, they were angry and they said, you're blaspheming and and he preached the gospel and he preached the love of Christ. And the Bible says they took him out and they began to stone him. And as he began to cast the stones and began to stone him, as the life began to leave his body, it's a beautiful thing. Stephen said this. One, he said the same thing that Jesus said, Lord, do not hold this against them. Wow, what love. By the way, the apostle Paul was standing there holding the coats he was the one who probably gave the order to have him killed. And then he hears Stephen say this. He says, behold, as he's getting ready to breathe his last breath, he says, it says he looked up into the heavens. He looked up. It says his face shone bright. And he says, behold, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. He saw Jesus. You know, there's some people who've been critical of that passage and critical of the word of God and said, well, that, see, there's contradictions in the Bible because the Bible says that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he is, isn't he? Amen. Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. But you know what I believe? You can say, I'm a heretic. You can say, well, you're just stretching it. I don't think this is a stretch because the Bible says that Stephen recorded in the word of God Luke records for us that he says, Behold, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. You know what I believe? It was the Lord Jesus Christ who is standing up, and he is the one who, who welcomed Stephen into the kingdom. Amen? And welcomed him into paradise. You know what the greatest thing is for us as believers? Is that someday we will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will be the one to greet us. St. Peter does not get that right. Amen? Jesus Christ gets that right. And Stephen said, I see the Son of Man standing. I believe Jesus Christ got up off his throne to welcome his faithful martyr. Amen? I'll tell you, the greatest thing that we have is Christ. If we have Christ, then we have everything. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Lord, we